0: All right. Well, welcome to Steepless Church. We are glad that you are with us today. Um, If you have not been with us before and you're on the Zoom, please use the chat feature. We're going to post verses there. We're going to have conversation there. Um, That is the best place to interact with us. You can certainly ask questions of us um, and talk to other people on the Zoom while we go through tonight's sermon. All right, got a few announcements. First is, in just a few minutes, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. So if you have, uh, if you're here and you have our cool little cups, go ahead and get it ready. Get your wafer out and your, your wine ready. If you're at home, you're going to want to grab your, you have your cup, maybe your steepleless coffee cup. Uh, Jesus is okay. If you, if you don't have any wine, he is perfectly fine with a little coffee to observe the Lord's Supper. I want to remind those of you on the Zoom that we have started doing the call to action questions after the service. So if you stay with us when the sermon is over, uh, we'll have a good conversation together. You don't have to talk, but we encourage you to. uh, You can either use the chat or you can simply uh, talk out loud. We'll actually unmute everybody and you can do the call to action questions with us. They are on your message guide. If you go to the website right now, you can... Download the message guide. It's got all of the verses we're going to be going through today, um, words to the words to the song for our worship, and it's also got a call to action questions. All right, um, I want to make a quick announcement that we are excited. We're going to have our first steepleless baptism. So, and I was looking over here because I'm looking right at Jan because she has um, come to us and said, "Hey, I need to." To get rebaptized, I made, uh, I got baptized before my profession of faith was. I really understood it, so we're excited. She's excited. She's going to be our first uh, steepleless baptism. We don't, uh, we don't have the exact time pinned out, but it's going to be soon, uh, and we hope you will join us for that. It may be during a service, but it may not be. It may be a special service. So we'll figure that out and let you know as soon as that comes up. But that is exciting, exciting news. <clears throat> All right, so today, the real world war. We're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 and 12 are our focal verses for tonight. Um, if you're trying to follow along, the, uh, the translation that I'll be reading out of is NASB. Uh, before we start the service, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And before we do that,
1: John, would you pray us in? I just wanted to remind everyone that I am the associate pastor here and at any point you can reach out to me if you want to help uh, understanding the Bible or anything like that. Uh, we do have Bible studies on Thursdays at 7 on Zoom and we usually have about three or four people on them. Uh, we would love to have more people but you can you you don't have to speak if you don't want to or you can speak as much as you want. We usually go we usually finish about seven forty-five, so it's not too long. Uh, we would love to have you so let's pray. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for our lives, God. Uh, we continue to pray for the people suffering around the world, God, but we can take solace in the fact that um, we know that at the end of the day, at the end of our lives, at the end of time itself, that there will justice will be done, God, and that anything that happens, God, um, you are in control of it ultimately, God. Uh, uh, Father, we thank you that we live in a country we are, we are, where we are free to express our faith, uh, Father, I pray that uh, the message would be um, come from you, God, and that it would be appropriate for us and impactful uh, in our lives, that we would um, gain something out of it, but also that we would um, be encouraged by you, God. Um, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. All right.
0: <clears throat> so, you know, I'm passionate about the book of Acts, and we really created our church centered around Acts chapter 2 and its description or Luke's description of what the early church looked like. Um, And you know, the early church really was devoted to four things. They were devoted to fellowship. They were devoted to prayer. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching and they were devoted to the Lord's Supper. Now, it's interesting to me um, that of all the things that Luke could have called out as kind of the four pillars or the key elements of the early church, the Lord's Supper is one of the four, Mm -hmm. okay? So that's um, just something to kind of think about as we go through this today because we're about to, we're about to do the devoted to the apostles teaching. We're about to get into the word of God. We're about to, to hear from the word of God and we're doing fellowship right now. If you're here in this house, Um, Hopefully, you're in a home group right now. Now, some of you aren't. Some of you are joining us online by yourself, and this is honestly one of the reasons why we really encourage home groups because Christianity is a team sport. It was never intended for us to do alone, okay? Um, Most prayer happens in the home groups, in in the church itself, although Plenty of prayer happens outside there, but that's a place for you to grow in your prayer life. It's another reason we encourage you to be part of a home group. And the fourth pillar is this breaking bread, this idea of taking the Lord's Supper. So why is it so important that Luke would call it out? Well, quite simply, taking the Lord's Supper reminds us of who Jesus is who we were without him and who we are with him. It puts us in our rightful relationship with God, with Christ. So that's what we're going to do right now. You know, there's two elements to the Lord's Supper. And the first one is the bread. And and at that final, literally Jesus' last supper, he broke actual bread and said, this is my body, which will be broken for you and his body was utterly broken for us. And we need to remember that sacrifice that he made of his physical body for us. And so to remember that, we're going to share in the bread right now. You may take the bread. And the next thing Jesus did after he had shared the bread with the with the 12 who were with him. He then took his cup and he said, this cup is my blood. And he would talk about how his blood would have to be shed for us. And we remember when we drink the wine in a moment, how his blood was literally shed for us. And the first thing we think of, of course, is his hands and his feet that were nailed to a cross and his blood poured from his hands And his feet, but sometimes we forget he had already been scourged with whips and his back and his body was already covered in his blood and his side was pierced with a spear and his head was pierced with that wreath of thorns that dug into his scalp. He literally shed his physical blood for us and it's that blood that saves us. So we remember that as we all take the cup. Father, we, uh, we thank you for the sacrifice that you made when you sent your son for us. And we thank you, Jesus, that you that you went through with the most difficult decision any human would ever have to make, any man would ever have to do, which would be to give his life in that way, the worst possible way. And, you know, so many of us, as we... We have conversation, we say, what would you do if you had just one more day to live? What would you do? And Jesus knew that he had one more day to live. And he washed feet. And then he prepared his friends for the ministry that they would take on as he willingly gave his life for us. And that's what we remember when we take the Lord's Supper. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, we're gonna start today because we're going to be talking about spiritual warfare. I wanna start with a quick video clip, all right? And uh, a little bit of background. I actually remember this happening. I remember when it happened live. I don't know if I was watching this game live, but I remember certainly when it hit the news. Um, This is the 2002 World Series and the San Francisco Giants uh, were in this series. I I believe they're playing the Anaheim, Anaheim Angels at the time. And I went to high school, the same high school that Dusty Baker went to. And Dusty Baker is about 20 years older than me, but by the time this video we're gonna watch happens, Dusty Baker is the coach for the San Francisco Giants. I actually did go to high school with his nephew, Jay Baker. Um, He and I played basketball together. Never played baseball with him, but I did play basketball with him. Um, So this was near and dear to my heart because I actually knew this family. Uh, and, and this is kind of a famous clip, so I'm going to show it now. It's very short, so I want you to, to watch what happens with, uh, with this game and a little boy named Darren Baker, Dusty Baker's son. Two, one.
1: Great. Deep right field, seven back. The ball. It's a foul. Two Two-one are going to score. One, the for
0: third. He's held there, and it's a six-run Giants lead. Thank goodness that J.T. Snow was aware and got Darren Baker out of the way, goodness. All right, so JT Snow, and that's the baseball player that grabbed little Darren Baker out of the way. He actually batted 406 during this series, which if you're a baseball fan, that's incredible. For a World Series to hit 406 is crazy, but nobody remembers that. They remember him grabbing this little three-year-old boy off of home plate and pulling him away during the game. That's what he's remembered for. And little Darren Baker put himself in harm's way because he ran out into the field to play. He ran out onto the field. But I don't know if you noticed, he had no idea what was going on around him. After JT Snow puts him back on the ground, he runs over, does that little slide to get the bat. If you see him running away, he's got a big smile on his face. He's just excited because there's a baseball game going on. He has no idea what just happened and what could have happened to him. But my question to you is, did the fact that that little boy was unaware of the danger around him make him any less in danger? They were gonna talk about spiritual warfare and the parallel that I want you to see is that even if you don't understand spiritual warfare, even if God forbid, you don't believe in spiritual warfare, that doesn't make you any less vulnerable to spiritual warfare. And I don't want you to get trampled at home plate, okay? So we're gonna start with who is at war? What is this war we're talking about, and who is involved? All right? And there are there are five characters in this drama. First of all, there's God him. So he would be the commander-in-chief of the good guys, okay? God himself is involved in this spiritual war that's happening. And on God's team, you've got all of the angels who have who have not <coughs> left heaven, the ones who are still on his team, okay? So you've got all these angels, and then you've got the opposing team. You've got Satan, of course, who is in control of his fallen angels that we call demons. So you've got God and the angels on one side and you've got Satan and his demons on the other. And then you have us. And it turns out that we're divided in terms of which side we're on. And I'll talk about that in just a second. You know, Ephesians 10. Ephesians 10. And 1 Peter 5, 8 through 9 goes on to say, be of sober spirit, be on alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. There is a spiritual war going on all around us. And by the way, if you you like that image, it's available as a PDF on the website. If you go to happenings, you will find... um, that PDF as well as one that's gonna be on an upcoming slide if you want to take those and download them for yourself. So these armies are big, okay? How big are the armies? Well, last week we talked about the fact that just in the throne room of God, there's 100 million angels. So there may be more than that, but we know that there are at least 100 million angels. And we know that one third of the total angels followed Satan. And so if 100 million are the number of, the good guys, the number of angels, that means there are about 50 million demons. The number could be higher, but we know there's at least 100 million angels on our side and 50 million on the adversary's side. Now there are 7.75 billion of us currently. So, if the numbers are correct, if it's 100 million and 50 million, that means there's about 77 people to every angel and about 155 people to every demon, all right? So there aren't as many of them as there are of us, but they're a lot bigger, tougher, stronger, more powerful than we are, okay? And then it comes down to how many people are on God's side and how many people are on Satan's side, and you, some of you are going, are people on Satan's side. Yeah, we'll get there. But let's start with on God's side. There are two point three billion people on planet Earth that say they're Christians. Two point three billion. Now, we've talked about this many times. I don't think there are nearly that many actual Christians. I think there's a lot of people that say they're Christians. Some who will even get to heaven and be surprised to find out they're not Christians, but certainly that number is high, okay? And so for me, I thought, well, what's the minimum number? And through every study I can find, I think kind of the smallest, yeah, I'm pretty confident that those folks are true believers, 1.5% of us in the United States actually evangelize. Of those of us who say we follow Christ, 1.5% of us actually go tell people about Jesus. So I think we can be safe that those folks are saved. Now the number in different countries would be higher or lower, and it'd probably be different, but just if we use that number, that comes out to 35 million. So I think it's pretty safe to say that there's at least 35 million believers, and on the high side there's 2.3 billion, the real number only God knows, and it's somewhere in between. But that means the number of people on Satan's side is somewhere between 5.5 billion and 7.7 billion. Their team is bigger than our team. Now, why am I including non-Christians in this equation at all? Why am I saying they're part of this war? Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 2 says, And you were dead in your offenses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. In other words, you used to be dead because you were following Satan. And here Paul telling the Ephesians, you're not dead anymore. You're now following Christ. But here he specifically calls out when you were dead in your sins, you were following the prince of this world. You were following Satan. Well, what kind of power would these people have then? If they don't even know, most of them, I don't know very many people who claim to follow Satan. What kind of power would they have? 1 John 5, 19 and 20 says, we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the son of God has come and he has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. You see, they have the power to lie with Satan's power, which kind of makes sense if you think about it, because how many times have you seen somebody believe something and you're like, how could they possibly believe that's true? How could they possibly be so deceived that they would believe that? That's crazy. Well, it's a lot easier to understand if you realize that they're believing the lies because those lies were told with the power of Satan. He's a real person. He's a real Danger, he's not a figment of our imagination, he's not a metaphor, he's not an analogy. Satan is a created being. The demons that follow him are created beings, they are real, they're not imaginary. So this is my first question for you to consider tonight. Do you believe that there is a spiritual war? Do you believe that? It's an important question fast. All right. So what's the war about? Why are we even in this war? What's going on that there is a war? Well, John 10.10 tells us that the thief, that's Satan, comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. To destroy what? Us. You see, God loves us, and Satan hates God. And so Satan wants to destroy what God loves, which is us. Not really very comfortable to be in the crosshairs, but that is the reality. We are in the crosshairs of Satan because God loves us. And he, Satan, hates God. And if that weren't enough, Satan wants to be worshipped the way God is worshipped. And because of this desire to be worshipped, he creates, and we're going to talk about how he does that, but he creates this illusion for others that they're following a true God when they're actually following Satan. The reason we have Hinduism and Buddhism and Islam and all these false religions, Mormonism, is because Satan disguises himself as a God because he wants to be worshipped. So he wants to destroy us and he himself wants to be worshiped. That's why there's a war happening. So where's the battleground of this war? It turns out there's two venues. There's actually two separate venues. There's two places that this battle is happening. And the first one is right here in our minds. It's a mental war. Satan is known as the great deceiver and the father of lies. 2 Corinthians 11, 13 through 15 says this. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness whose end will be according to their deeds. You know, sometimes we see these groups, whether they're political or whether they're religious or social, and they've taken positions that clearly are against the Bible. And yet they hold themselves up to be the righteous group of people the defenders of good things. The the reason they say they're doing the things they're doing and and pushing the agenda they're pushing is because they're good and righteous people. They're protecting others, they're helping others. When in fact, they're following Satan and wickedness. And it's only when you know the truth because God has opened your eyes and your heart and your mind, and you look and you go, how can people think they're righteous? It's because they have disguised themselves as righteous. And the devil literally helps them do that. Okay, so there is a battle going on in our own minds. Now, Satan also attacks us with temptation. That's the other battle that happens in our minds. And we're going to talk about that in more detail in a moment. But there's also a physical battle right Some of you won't like this, but contrary to popular belief, the enemy can affect you physically. I want you to listen to Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 12, 7. A lot of people miss this. You've heard this verse before, probably, but you might have missed part of it. 2 Corinthians 12, 7. Because of the extraordinary greatness of the revelations, for this reason to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Paul is saying, I have this malady, I have this physical ailment, this something. We don't know exactly what that meant. We know that Paul asked God to take it away from him. He prayed three times, (coughs) God take this away. God eventually would say no, Your grace is sufficient. My grace is sufficient for you. I'm not taking it away. But did you catch where it came from? A messenger of Satan to torment me. It wasn't a random act. It wasn't a random illness. It wasn't just because we live in a fallen world and he got sick. It wasn't that he tripped and fell down. Sometimes, and you won't like this either, maybe, sometimes God gives us physical things that we don't like. It's rare, but it happens. But Satan can do that. Satan gave Paul whatever his malady was. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, yeah, but God protects us. God protects us from evil and certainly he does. Many, many, many times he does. Thank God, literally, that he does. And one of the, I think, the most beautiful examples of explaining his protection is found in Psalm 91. And Psalm 91 is going to, we're gonna, we're gonna listen to it right now, and it's going to tell us about God's protection, which is amazing, which is powerful. But I want you to listen to the whole context of what is said here in Psalm 91. One who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will lodge in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For it is he who rescues you from the net of the trapper and from the deadly plague. He will cover you with his pinions, feathers, and under his wings, you may take refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a wall. You will not be afraid of the terror by night, or of the arrow that flies by day, or of the plague that stalks in darkness, or the destruction that devastates at noon. A thousand may fall at your side, and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. You will only look on with your eyes and see the retaliation against the wicked." For you have made the Lord my refuge, the most high your dwelling place. No evil will happen to you, nor will any plague come near your tent. For he will give you his angels orders concerning you to protect you in all your ways. On their hands they will lift you up so that you will not even strike your foot against a stone. You will walk upon the lion and the cobra, you will trample the young lion and the serpent. Because he has loved me, I will save him. I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. I will satisfy him with a long life and show him my salvation. Those are powerful words. They're encouraging words. They're reassuring words, but did you catch the part about dwelling with him. Because the psalmist says it twice. You see, we have to choose to dwell with God. And unfortunately, sometimes we choose to sin. I'm not talking about the accidental sin. Sometimes we choose to walk out from God's shelter when we sin. We know what we're about to do is wrong and we do it anyways. And when we do that, it's like, It's like walking out from underneath the shield. God has stretched his wings out to protect us and we choose to walk outside his wings. So sometimes we make ourselves vulnerable to Satan's attacks. God has offered us protection and we've chosen not to accept it, all right? And sometimes God allows Satan to affect us physically, like he did with Paul. Now, the fact that he allows that and that how all that works, honestly, is a sermon all by itself. We're not gonna go in there today. To, we're not gonna talk about that, but if you need to know more about that, want to know more about that, please reach out to us. I would love to explain it. John would love to explain mm-hmm. it to you. So what are the weapons of this war? If we're in a war, We're the subjects of the war. We're the whole reason this thing is going on. What are the weapons of this war? First of all, demons can possess, literally take over, the bodies of unbelievers. Okay, those who are not in Christ, those who are not following Jesus, are susceptible to actual demon possession. Okay, Luke 22, 3 and 4 says, and Satan entered Judas, the one called Iscariot, who belonged to the number of the 12. And he left and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he was to betray him to them. You see, demons can make possessed people do whatever they want. And if you don't have the protection of the Holy Spirit, if you don't have God dwelling in you then you are powerless to stop the demons they are far more powerful than you there is nothing you can do to keep them from possessing you if they wish to okay especially if you're on the God allows it list now this is really important because of all the demon possessions in the Bible not one was a believer In fact, it's this verse that has ultimately convinced me that Judas was not a believer. And I know that I've had that debate with many many different people. Was Judas a, a believer who went astray and betrayed him or was he an unbeliever? And there are as many views on that as there are people. But for me, that verse I just read you has led me to conclude that he was not. Because had he been a believer i don't believe he would have been able to be possessed by the demon that took him over okay and for us as believers those of us who do follow jesus we can't be possessed but we can be oppressed they can still influence us they just can't take over us okay so it's interesting i did a little i did a little uh checking here and about Half the time when Jesus healed someone, he actually cast out a demon. Now, does that mean that all sickness is caused by demons? No, it does not mean that. We live in a fallen world and our bodies are subject to decay and illness, and our bodies will, all of our bodies will break down at some point. We live in a fallen world. Sickness is not always a spiritual issue, but there are many who believe that sickness is never a spiritual issue, that it is just the cause of a fallen world. It's always natural causes that demons don't have an influence on us. But again, I did a quick search and there are 28 times when Jesus performed healings of people. And 12 of the 28 were him casting out demons. Almost half of his healings were actually demon exorcisms. And certain kinds of sickness seem to be very prone to demons like mental illness, speech issues, symptoms that apparently don't have a a cause. There are certain things that seem to be prone to demon possession. Addiction would be another one. So here we have all these examples of of Jesus casting out demons in order to perform his healings, all right? And there's nothing in Scripture that says that demons have become less powerful since Jesus left the earth. There's nothing in Scripture that says that. There are some cessationists who believe that when the sign gifts died out with the apostles, that demon possession went with it but I believe that directly contradicts scripture. Jesus himself said that they, the apostles, would do even greater miracles than he did. And there are some who interpret that to say he only meant the 12. He didn't mean us, he only meant the 12. And that when those 12 died, so did that promise, so did all the gifts. So I would challenge you, if you're in that camp, if you think, yep, All those gifts died out with the apostles. Tell me one place. Tell me one miracle that an apostle did that was greater than a miracle that Jesus did. There's not one. There's not one recorded. And certainly, if there was a miracle greater than Jesus' miracles, someone would have recorded it in Scripture. It's not there. Those gifts did not die with the apostles. They live on in us. And quite frankly, why would... Why would would Jesus take away this incredibly powerful tool we have to to take demons out of people without restricting the demons? That makes no sense at all. Why would he tie our hands in our spiritual warfare? He would not do that. All right. So demons can be cast out, but let's face it, tangling with them is tricky business. And if you don't know what you're doing, if you're not... (laughs) fully well versed and really spent time with God, understanding spiritual warfare, you should probably call someone who knows more about it than you do if that's something that you have to deal with. All right? So the other thing I wanna cover is temptation because that's the devil and his minions most common weapon that they use. The most common thing they do is tempt you to sin, all right? So I want you to listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. This is another one of those passages that you've probably heard before. No temptation has overtaken you except something common to mankind, and God is faithful. So he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Now, this is one of the most misquoted scriptures maybe in the whole Bible. I can't tell you how many people I have heard say, God will never give you more than you can handle. That's not what the passage says. The passage says he will not give you any temptation without giving you a way out. God gives you more than you can handle every day on purpose because we're supposed to rely on him. If we could rely on ourselves, what would be the point of him dying on a cross? Of course, he gives us more than we can handle. You can't take on a demon by yourself. You will lose, okay? But when it comes to temptation, you don't have to lose. There is no temptation that you will be tempted with that God does not provide you with a way out. Unfortunately, many times, we choose not to take door number one. We don't take the way out that he gives us. And we think about it and we rehearse it, and we imagine it, and that temptation becomes deeper and harder to resist, and we choose to sin. But never once has a follower of Christ been tempted by Satan or his demons, or even with his own mind that God didn't give him a way out. We just choose not to take them. okay? I think we need to go even a little further and talk about how we open doorways to the enemy and we do that with unrepented sin. Unfortunately, there are sins that are kind of common and typically they look like anger. They look like invited temptation. We literally intentionally start thinking about things we shouldn't be thinking about. We start daydreaming about sinning We let things go into our head that shouldn't be there. We don't think on good things. We think on evil things and they grow in our minds. And then we watch TV, quite frankly, we watch TV shows that are totally inappropriate that we would never watch in a million years if Jesus were on the couch. The problem is Jesus is on the couch. We just pretend like he's not there. We listen to music that's got horrible messages. We play video games that have horrible content. We go onto the internet and and look at all kinds of things and listen to all kinds of things we shouldn't. We even engage in, I mean, as blatant as pornography, things that are absolutely going to eat us up in our minds. And then there are idols. And I mean physical idols. So I have permission to tell this story and it's... um, If I don't tell it perfectly, I apologize, I'll retell it later, but this is how I understood the story. Our friend, our friend Jana, had a bit of an epiphany recently. She was in her home and she was praying. And she was praying that if there was anything in her life that God wanted out of her life, that he would make it aware to her, that he would make her aware of whatever that was. And I don't think this was anything she was expecting to have happen, but suddenly her her eyes and her mind were focused on something sitting on her shelf. And it was literally a little figurine, a little image. And it wasn't even something she had purchased, it was something, if I understand, that had been given to her um, or passed down from her parents, something they had got in the 60s or 70s. And she wasn't even really sure what it was. It was just this little decorative thing but she was overcome with the desire to get it out of her house, to destroy it, just the way they destroyed the the uh, poles in the Old Testament when they would destroy the idols that, that the pagans had made. And so she literally took this item that had been passed down through her family to her, she took it out in the garage, took a hammer and smashed it into pieces, put those pieces in a garbage can and put the garbage can with the curtain. And amazingly, two things happened. First of all, she later went and hunted down what it was and it turns out it was an idol from a false religion. She just didn't realize what it was. And more importantly, she said, you know, since I've done that, my head has been more clear. I'm able to focus on God's word in a more powerful way and I hear him louder than I heard him before. There was a literal physical idol that was impeding her relationship with Christ. And God pointed it out to her, and she crushed it and destroyed it, which I think is just. I can just I can just see Janet in the garage with a hammer smashing that dude into pieces. I think it's awesome. But don't be deceived. You go to stores all over stores that we like to go to, go to Oh, my my wife loves home goods, right? They have all kinds of stuff for your house. And there's a ton of them. I'm not singling out home goods. Places all over that sell decorative items for your house. And they'll commonly have like Hindu statues and the little elephants and, you know, the Buddhas and stuff because they're pretty. They look cool. Don't put those things in your home. You're inviting demons into your home. When I was writing this and I, I, I was... Putting down the things that we have to be careful of. And I thought about television. I thought of my sister because my sister has been saying since I was a little boy, don't watch certain kinds of TV because you're opening a doorway to the enemy and everybody always has given her a hard time about it. You know what though? She's absolutely right. It's truth. You have to be very, very careful of doorways that you open up and just literally Intentional or not, invite the enemy into your home and into your life. So we've been discussing the enemy's weapons, but what about ours, right? Do we have any weapons? Good news, <coughs> we do. We have some great weapons. And the first one I wanna point out here is that 2 Corinthians 10, verses three and four says this, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not wage battle according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. So there's a couple things we can take away with that. First of all, we there are actual weapons we're going to use. They're not going to be a sword. We're not going to go against a demon with an AR-15. That's not how this works, right? They're not weapons of flesh, but they're spiritual weapons. And they're powerful enough to bring down fortresses. Your translation might say strongholds. There are strongholds that the devil has in your life. There are things that trap you. There are sins that easily beset you. Maybe you're prone to anger. Maybe you're prone to sexual sin, whatever that is. Those strongholds, those fortresses that seem insurmountable in your life, the spiritual weapons of warfare are powerful enough to bring them down. That's important. And I want you to listen to what James 4, 7 says. This one's short. You should memorize this one. Submit, therefore, to God, but resist the devil, and he will flee from you. He will flee from you. Your weapons of warfare are strong enough that the devil himself will run away when you tell him to, if you know how to wield them. So what do they look like? What are some of these weapons? Well, picking up where we left off in Ephesians 6, we're now going to read 13 through 18. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist on the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having belted your waist with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having strapped on your feet the preparation of the gospel of peace, and in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. With every prayer and request, pray at all times in the Spirit, And with this in view, be alert, and with all perseverance, and every request for all of the saints. So this is my next question for you to consider. Are you proficient in the weapons of spiritual warfare? Do you, when I read those verses to you, did they sink in? Yeah, I've got the helmet of salvation on, I've got my shield of faith in front of me, understand how to use the word as a sword? Or are you more thinking about like, what in the world does that mean? What does it mean to use the word as a sword? Think about Jesus who fasted from food and water for 40 days and then Satan shows up in the wilderness and Satan laid out in front of him these incredible temptations. If you haven't eaten in 40 days, You're hungry. And when Satan says, turn that rock into a piece of bread, that probably sounded pretty good. I might turn it into a little Debbie, but it would kind of be like bread. But what did Jesus do? He didn't just say no, he didn't go beat up the devil. What did he do? He took scripture and he used it as a weapon. Satan tried to to stab him with a sword of temptation, and Jesus came back with his own sword and it was the word of God. Are you proficient in the weapons of spiritual warfare? All right, how long is this war gonna last? It's probably important. How does it end? When is it, you know, what's, what's gonna happen? Well, this war is going to happen until the second coming of Jesus. That's when this war will finally end. But until then, This war will continue, and there will be no no ceasefires. There will be no breaks. This will happen until the second coming of Jesus. Now, for all of us in this room, probably all of you who will ever see this video, you won't see that from earth. We'll see it either from heaven because our tour of duty is done. In other words, we have passed away on this earth and gone to be with Jesus, or we get raptured. Either way, you will not see the end of this war from earth but there will be some who do. And that begs the question, well, how will it end? And unlike most wars, and most wars we don't know how they'll end, God already told us how this one will end. Revelation 20, verses seven through 10 say this. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for war. And the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire And brimstone, where the beast and the false false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. See, we already know what will happen in the end, and I love how I love how God revealed it to John. Not just that we win, but. I'm really looking forward to that day because Satan's going to gather all his demons and all the people on earth who are on his side and they're going to surround the saints, the few who are left on earth. And before they even throw a punch, before they even fire a shot, God's going to send fire down from heaven and just consume them all. But I like the way Paul said it in his letter to the Romans even better. Simple and succinct. Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Let's praise him for that. Heavenly Father, thank you that we have already won this war, that the outcome is already decided and that you are in control. And until then, while we still have to fight, Lord, I pray that first of all, you would help us to see the truth of the spiritual war that is happening around us, that we will not bury our heads in the sand, that we will not be afraid to discuss this, that we will not be afraid to take this issue head on. Because your word says it's true, your word says this is what's happening around us. So please give us courage, give us understanding, help us to Work with one another to understand through your Holy Spirit what these things mean. Help us to be in community, to have fellowship with one another, to to listen to your words, to discover the truth. And Lord, help us to see the enemy where he is. Help us to learn to wield the weapons of defense and offense that you have given us. And I pray, Lord, that we would wield them well so that we bring honor and glory to you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so what? Now what? Are you prepared to do spiritual battle? Are you ready? Because it's happening around you, just like that little boy ran out onto the field of play. It doesn't matter whether you realize it's happening. It's happening now, right now. Not understanding does not make you immune. It makes you vulnerable. Don't be vulnerable. All right. Not only do you have every weapon you need, every tool you need to win this war, but you have the Holy Spirit as your general. That's pretty awesome. Okay? You have everything you need, you just need to learn how to use it. And think about the early church. Think about what you need to do that. It means you means you need to spend time in the word. It means you need to devote yourself to prayer. It means you need to Take part in the Lord's Supper. You need to really focus on and remember who Jesus is and what he did for us. And it means you need to have fellowship with other believers. That's really, really important. You know, when I was a kid, um, we had Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. And it was a TV show and it was, it was the nature show where you got to watch lions and tigers and, you know, and bears, oh my, and um, one of the things that always happens, they'd have a lion. It seems like they were usually in Africa and there would be a lion and it would be attacking like a herd of antelope or wildebeest or whatever. And the lion always did the same thing. They, they would come and they would attack the group, but they wouldn't actually try to kill one of the animals in the group, all they were doing is trying to scatter them. And eventually they'd cut one animal off from the rest of the herd. And that's when the lion would attack. When the antelope or whatever it was, was all by itself. And Peter warned us, the devil is like a lion prowling around for someone to devour. He's not going to try to devour you in the middle of your home group. Because you have strength in your fellowship, strength in your fellow believers. He's gonna to try to cut you off from the herb. He's gonna to try to get you alone and then he's gonna to try to take you down. And if you wonder why do, we, why do we want people to be part of home groups, it's because you need to have fellowship of believers in your life. Because that's where you will grow in strength and power. All right, speaking of that, home groups, download the call to action questions now and answer them with your group. And remember, if you're on the Zoom, stay on. And In just a minute, we're going to answer them together uh, right here on this Zoom. Today, we learned about spiritual warfare. Next week, we're going to learn more about our most powerful offensive weapon and defensive weapon, which is prayer. So do not miss that. Thank you for being part of the Steepless Church family. We love you, and we'll see you next week.